It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Welcome into a very special edition of the show before the show, the Minor League Baseball Podcast. We're all primped and ready. Uh, Sam and I recording, you know, 2,000 miles away from each other, just decked out tuxedos and, and, and shiny shoes and everything because we are talking Minor League Baseball Awards today, the Milby Awards. You can vote now at MILB.com slash Milby for your favorites for the 2015 minor league season in all kinds of categories. We're going to go over all of them. Sam, how are you? How's your tuxedo fitting? It, it's perfect. It, uh, I'm surprised. I don't think I've ever had a tuxedo fit. It's well tailored. Yeah, I, I won't exactly say I'm dressed to the nines, maybe dressed the sevens or eights. But, okay. Uh, yeah, that, I'll, I'll take that. It that kind works. of feels, it has that feel of, uh, you know, they announced the nominees for the Oscars and everybody wakes up early on the West Coast. And yeah. They've got these famous people announcing, you know, who the nominees are and I don't know if we quite fit like the profile of like a Rob Lowe or somebody would wake up that early to do it but uh yeah this is our day for this and I'm excited we are uh, we're gonna have a whole pile of fun with it because there are a lot of contenders in all these categories who are very deserving um I mean really throughout all of these you look at the ballot and again you can go to milb.com slash milbies and it's just one more difficult to decide than the next and uh but we're gonna help you we'll talk you through it and yeah. uh you know this will be like good therapy for us as we get started here on the 27th edition of the show before the show uh as this has been i mean throughout this entire season we've had this conversation about virtually everything like oh man it's so tough to pick blank about whether it's oh this is a guy who you know really blew up at the start of the season he kind of stood out as the best player in this organization or in this league or whatever it is now we get to throw everything into a pot and we get to discuss who the top performers in all minor league baseball are uh and we're going to talk about a guy who we had on last week's edition of the show blake snell we'll talk about some people who we've had on other episodes of the show this season uh but before we dive into all that you can subscribe, rate, and review the podcast at iTunes. The Minor League Baseball Podcast is there. You can find us there. You can leave us a rating and a review and grab a subscription while you're there. You can also check out the podcast on iTunes. Uh, I misspoke, or on, on the site, sorry, at MILB.com. I misspoke before. It's episode number 28, not number 27. So we're right on track with me forgetting which episode <laughs> it is. And, uh, and let's it's get into it. Like no, uh, no, no other. It's us forgetting <laughs> where we are. That's exactly. That is, if there's one thing week to week you can count on with a Minor League Podcast, it is that we will forget which episode number we are on. Uh, but let's jump right into it. Let's dive in with our very first category. And uh, why not start with last week's uh, interview subject to highlights one of these groups. We'll talk a couple of pitching categories first and then top offensive player. But top starting pitcher. Last week on the podcast, we had Tampa Bay Rays pitching prospect Blake Snell, the left-hander who just blew up in really his second straight breakout campaign. But uh, I think the way we'll, we'll do this conversation is I'm going to read off the nominees. 
I'll have Sam give you his take on kind of the favorites that he sees in the category. I'll give you some people who stand out to me, and we'll move on to the next one. So let's get started with uh, top starting pitcher of the 2015 season. If we had a really good big production staff, I would put in, like, drum roll here and, like, the nominees are. Thank you, Sam. Um, yeah. See? I'm really, on, my, on my lap. I don't know if I'm going to do this for every category. We have a lot of categories. <laughs> You're going to be bruised by the end just, of the day. Just cut that out and place it over everything. And that's, the, you know, we'll use technology to make this happen. Done and done. Uh, starting things off, Jose Barrios of the Minnesota Twins organization, Double A and Triple A combined this season, fourteen and five, a two point eight seven ERA. Matt Boyd, left-handed pitcher in the Detroit Tigers organization, uh, who was part of the deal that sent David Price to the Toronto Blue Jays. He was formerly a Blue Jays prospect, moved over to the Tigers uh, at the deadline this season. Jose De Leon in the Los Angeles Dodgers system spent this season. A little bit in uh, Class A advanced in the California League. Seven starts there, then jumped up to Double A in the Texas League. Jacob Feria, this is going to become a theme. Tampa Bay Rays prospects are rising quickly on the pitching side. Feria, who is one of those guys who's pretty much off the radar uh, coming into this season, but 17-4 and four with a 1.92 ERA, made 10 starts for Class A advanced Charlotte, and then jumped up uh, to Double A Montgomery and was fantastic this year. Uh, or I should say earned 10 wins for Class A advanced Charlotte and then got seven and more with double a montgomery uh the detroit tigers michael fulmer another trade acquisition he was brought over in the Joanna cespedes deal tyler glasnow of the pittsburgh pirates glasnow was last year's milby winner as top starter he's back in the running this year another great season for him a young right-hander in the pirates organization alex reyes who we've talked about a lot he was a jake signer favorite of course rest in peace jake uh Fair that is. fireballing right-hander in the st louis cardinals organization who's got a fastball that touches triple digits and is just filthy blake snell our guy from last week in episode number 27 you can check out that episode and hear our interview with blake 15 and 5 overall record of 1.41 era this season he was unranked entering the year on mlb.com's top 100 list he's now number 41 one out of the 2015 season another cardinals prospect is right-hander luke weaver 1.62 era with class a advanced palm beach and rounding things out our very own jake signer look like in the chicago cubs minor league pitcher of the year ryan williams who spent his season with class a south bend and then jumped over a class a advanced and made it all the way to double a where he was outstanding for the tennessee smokies uh sam give me some of your uh, your initial reactions about starting pitchers yeah, and, and, you know, we mentioned him a couple times there. Blake Snell is the first guy who jumps out to me. Um, you know, if you get a chance after listening to our podcast here, go back one episode. You know, if this is your first time listening to us, go back and listen to Blake Snell, have him talk about his big year. Because it was really an historic season for him, as you mentioned, in 1.41 ERA, 163 strikeouts in 134 innings. Guy went to three different levels, finished out at the top level of the minors, AAA Durham. Um, you know, was setting... You know, not, he, he, I think he led all the minors in, in ERA with that 1.41 mark. That's the lowest for a full-season minor leaguer since Justin Verlander was in there, just to give you some sort of context for the season he had. So I think any discussion you have to have about, you know, particularly this Milby's category, but just starting pitcher of the year in general has to start with him. Um, you know, Jose Barrios, so we have him at the top of the list. That's just kind of alphabetic, but, um, you know, the way he pitched at both AA and AAA this year, got a lot of strikeouts, 175, pitched a lot of innings, 166 and one-third. That's a lot for, you know, a guy in the minors. You know, a lot of times they don't want to ride a guy's arm unless he, you know, shows the durability, and that's certainly something he did, and he showed effectiveness with a 2.87 ERA between Rochester um, and, and AA. 
uh, Chattanooga this year for the Twins. So those are those are kind of two guys that immediately come out to me. I am a big guy on strikeouts. So, you know, the Alex Reyes is the Jose De Leon's guys who had and, and Tyler Glass now's guys who you know were touching double digits in uh, strikeouts for nine innings. I mean, those really stand out for me. I think Jacob Ferry is going to be um, a little bit of a favorite amongst amongst the crowd. He, he went 17 and four for those of you who like wins and losses or who really look at a record, you know, a sub two ERA, average more than a strikeout per inning. I think a lot of people are going to like him. Kind of interesting um, from a, at least prospect standpoint, MLB.com doesn't currently have him ranked amongst their top 30 prospects in the race system. I think they, you know, want to see how he does you know, at, at slightly higher levels. He, he was very good with Montgomery this year. We'll see what he does hopefully next year with Durham before he gets some real prospect consideration. But he, he did everything you want, you want to see. So between him and Snell, the Rays are certainly well represented. And like I said, the Tigers uh, with Fulmer and Boyd getting a couple of guys who, uh, you know, getting them in trades and really bolstering them. They have two uh, candidates as well. So I think it kind of starts with Snell and goes from there. But, you know, depending on how you – what stats you want to look at, whether it's, you know, innings pitched, lots of strikeouts, really low ERA. There's, there's no um, bad candidate on here. It was tough to get down, you know, whittle this down to 10 guys. That is, I mean, this category is among the strongest that we have out there. And one of the, the statistical numbers that I think really kind of gives you a, a snapshot of how good these guys are of all of these pitchers, only one, had a fielding independent pitching over three, uh, and he actually didn't even make our final cut. That was Jorge Lopez and the Milwaukee Brewers organization. Everybody else is a sub-two fielding independent pitching rating, and that is, to quote the Fangraphs definition, stat that estimates a pitcher's run prevention independent of the performance of their defense. It's based on outcomes that do not involve defense, strikeouts, walks, hit by pitches, and home runs allowed. That uses those statistics and approximates a pitcher's ERA, assuming average outcomes on balls in play. So if you have a fielding independent pitching rating that's better than your ERA, it kind of shows that you were let down a little bit by your defense. And there's one guy who really stands out to me in that regard, and that's Alex Reyes. Right. Uh, Reyes' staff, his season-long ERA was 2.49, but his FIP, his FIP, was 1.85. And again, 151 strikeouts against 49 walks in 101 and a third innings. That's already, I mean, it's a 3-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio, and it's more than obviously a, a strikeout. I mean, it's basically a strikeout and a half per inning. And for... A guy who is that young and at that level to be commanding the ball that well, be striking out a whole ton of guys, that's very advanced for the Class A advanced level. That's what really stands out to me. I mean, obviously, Ray is what we know. You know, as Sam noted, there's a whole lot of things that are not captured in a win-loss record. He had a 5-7 and seven record this season. He only goes 101 in the third innings, which is low compared to a lot of other guys on this list. But his numbers just jump out at you with how absurd uh, his strikeouts and, and the, the power in that arm. 13.4 Ks per nine this season. So he's definitely on there for me. I agree. Jose Barrios, I think, is, is one of those guys that was fun for us to watch because – over the offseason, you know, he'd post videos of himself flipping tires on a beach and doing all this crazy stuff and getting ready for 2015 and, you know, always with his push the game hashtag. And he kind of got to follow what Barrios was doing, and it seemed like he was as dedicated or more dedicated, accurate or not. It seemed like he was at the, the head of that list because of what he projects in his attitude and in his his approach to every start and being ready to go out every five days uh he i mean puts together another season that 
Highest drafted pitcher ever out of Puerto Rico. A lot of people didn't really know what to expect out of him, but it looks like he's the real deal in that organization. Those two guys definitely stand out for me. And then Blake Snell. I mean, you can't you can't discount what Blake Snell did. Uh, going over three levels, starting the season with 49 straight scoreless innings, and then finishing up with AAA Durham in a way that – made you realize okay this isn't just a kid dominating levels that he's better than he gets up to the triple a level and is outstanding there as he was everywhere else and so like you said i mean way too many good guys to nominate in this category uh but i think it's a good list of 10 and those i don't want to face if i was a hitter i wouldn't want to face any of them no no that's certainly true that is not exactly a menu of pitchers you would want to order off of Top relief pitcher of the season. We'll start in the Cleveland Indians organization with right-hander Sean Armstrong, who saw some time this season with the Double A Akron Rubber Ducks. Also got a couple of call-ups to Cleveland. Did not allow a run over his last six out or over his first six outings there. A couple of Diamondbacks pitchers, right-hander Silvino Bracco, who is in the Double A level for uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks. Also saw some time starting the season at Class A Advanced. Finished up in Arizona. Left-hander Zach Curtis. Started with the Class A Kane County Cougars, led the minor leagues with 33 saves. Uh, Baltimore Orioles organization, Oliver Drake, was an outstanding arm this year. One of their co-minor league pitchers of the year, along with Michael Givens, another reliever in that system. Uh, Drake finished his season. A couple of call-ups to Baltimore. Um, his debut was three scoreless innings there, but saw the majority of his time uh, with the AAA Norfolk Tides. Paul Fry, a right-hander in the Mariners system, got started a little bit slowly, but got a promotion out of Class A advance to the AA level. Kyle Grana, who's in the St. Louis Cardinals organization. Jeff Johnson, another right-hander in the Indian system. Ryan Kelly. Great story, Ryan Kelly, a a Tommy John guy uh, and a guy who's come back to be very, very strong at the AAA level in the Brave system. Jake Smith in the Giants organization, and finally Zach Weiss in the Cincinnati Reds organization. A lot of times relievers in minor league baseball are kind of tough to nail down because you don't really know. Guys who are successful as relievers in the minor leagues oftentimes find their way back into starting roles, so you don't know if this is necessarily the role that they're going to have going forward in their careers. But based on this season, this is a very dominant crop also. Yeah, the one who really stuck it out to me, um, you mentioned he led the, the minors in saves. And, you know, like you said, it, it, it's kind of difficult to look at these guys in terms of certain numbers when it comes to minor league relievers just because, um, you know, everybody's got a different role. And just because you're a closer now doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a closer later. And, you know, different managers have different theories on how to use relievers. Um, but the guy who stood out to me was Zach Curtis. You know, a guy in the D-backs organization had a really good year last year for Hillsborough. Um, you know, I think I wrote about him in, in the midseason. I, I gave him a midseason building when I was just kind of making those myself, and everybody was going crazy for him in the D-backs organization. Um, a lot of people are kind of down on him because he's five foot nine, but man, the guy puts up numbers. He had a 1.33 ERA this year, had a 1.00 ERA last year, uh, 33 saves and 36 opportunities, struck out 75 in 54 innings. That's with only 12 walks, so we're talking about, you know, roughly a 6 to 1, uh, you know, strikeout to walk ratio. That's exactly what you want to see. His whip was really low at 0.83. When we were kind of going through guys, I think he was the first on my list just because, you know, he had those 33 saves, but then you look stronger at his resume, um, and it just gets stronger and stronger as you look. Um, And, you know, you mentioned Oliver Drake. You know, I, I wish we could get Michael Gibbons on here too. Um, you know, they were both awarded for their for their years in the, the Orioles system, but for Drake, sub one ERA, which is exactly what you want to see when you're looking at relief pitchers in terms of these categories. There are just so many relievers in the minors. 
Um, it, it's tough to stand out, so you really need to put up numbers like he did. Uh, 0.82 ERA, 66 strikeouts, 44 innings, you know, a 0.89 whip. When your ERA is lower than your whip and your whip is still pretty good, that's a, that's a really good sign. Uh, he was perfect in terms of saves, 23 for 23. Um, you know, pitched at that high level in Norfolk. Uh, you know, so he's a guy who really stuck out to me between, for me, it was really between those two guys, Curtis and, and Drake. Silvino Bracco was another guy too, but uh, what about for you, Tyler, when you were looking at this list, who kind of jumped out for you? Yeah, I mean, just touching on Oliver Drake right there, he's such a cool story. And that, you know, it doesn't necessarily factor into our voting here, but if you don't know Oliver Drake's story, he's a product of the United States Naval Academy. He was a 43rd round draft pick in 2008 uh, and took eight seasons in the minor leagues to make his climb to the big leagues. And when you look over his minor league stats, there are a whole lot of pretty unremarkable seasons in there, especially when he mm-hmm. got started as a professional. 2008, he was very good. Pitching at some lower levels is kind of an older guy at Bluefield and Aberdeen and the Appy League and the New York Penn League. But 2009, I mean, a 4.34 ERA in 25 games for Class A Delmarva. Uh, not very good in 2010, a 4.92 ERA in 24 games, 21 of those starts for Class A Advanced Frederick. Early on in his career, I think you looked at Oliver Drake as, you know, again, he's a nice story, came out of the Naval Academy, whatever it is. But for him to convert himself into a reliever, not just a reliever, but a dominant reliever, shows you that there is a whole lot of athleticism and a whole lot of aptitude in his ability to change his game and turn him into something very successful. And that's really cool. The guys who make those really long, arduous climbs to the major leagues, those are some of the most fun guys for us to watch and the most rewarding for major league organizations to watch. So I think Oliver Drake is a, a really good contender for this. Like we said, he was the, the Orioles co-minor league pitcher of the year with Michael Givens, who's another crazy story. He was drafted as a shortstop and converted to a pitcher. Um, but uh, aside from Oliver Drake, another guy who I, I sort of mentioned was uh, an interesting one in that I don't think he was really on a whole lot of people's radar is Ryan Kelly. And Kelly made a couple of appearances up at the major league level this year. Didn't have a whole lot of success there. 17 appearances for the Atlanta Braves, uh, 7.02 ERA at the major league level. But at the minor league level, this is a journeyman guy who's been in four different organizations. And this year looked like one of those guys you think, how do you miss on a guy like this? Uh, Combined 41 appearances between AA Mississippi and AAA Gwinnett. A 4-2 record, a 0.77 ERA and a whip of 0.89. He struck out 48 and in 47 innings. And again, a Tommy John guy who was initially a prospect drafted by the Pittsburgh Pirates, then was with the Texas Rangers, then was with the San Diego Padres, now he's with the Braves. Those guys sometimes take a little while to find themselves. And Ryan Kelly uh, was a high school guy out of Hilton Head High School in South Carolina, and now 27 years old, but he's getting things figured out. And even though it didn't translate necessarily to a whole lot of success at the major league level this year, it seems like he's found himself, and he's one of those very under-the-radar guys who I think uh, kind of gives the Braves – one of those diamonds, maybe one of those gems that they didn't expect to find to add to a bullpen going forward. We know with all the talent that they're acquiring uh, to start rebuilding that organization. So um, maybe a couple guys who aren't necessarily the traditional types of prospects, but uh, put together some really impressive 2015 seasons. Yeah, and you made a good point there is that, you know, this is a fan vote. You can vote for whatever you like. If you right. like a really good a guy's a story, by all means, vote yeah. for him. You know, there's reasons why we put them on this list over others. Um, so yeah, you, everybody who's listening to this, you're free to vote however you want. You know, we're being your guides here, but uh, yeah, look into these guys. They all have interesting backstories that we can, you know, we can't necessarily discuss in just short little blurbs either on the podcast or on here. But uh, 
yeah, you know, vote for however your heart feels, I guess. It's a fan vote. And it again, you can vote, vote at MILB.com slash Milby voting from October 7th through the 27th. Top offensive player is next, and we'll start it off in the Texas Rangers organization, Lewis Brinson, who Sam talked to for a great tool shed piece a couple of weeks back. Go check that out. Brinson, fantastic season this year. First rounder in 2012 and really starting to, to come into his own as well. Max Kepler, another fascinating story, a German-born prospect and not like a kid who was born on an Air Force base somewhere with American parents. This is a German kid, Max Kepler who uh, made his major league debut, got his first major league hit over the weekend as well in the Minnesota Twins organization, was the Southern League MVP this year. Trey Mancini in the Baltimore Orioles organization spent the bulk of this season at Double A Bowie. Jose Martinez in the uh, Kansas City Royals organization. And Martinez is one of those guys who we talked about as kind of a snub, it felt like, at the end of the season. Not a whole lot of people had realized what he had done in the PCL for Triple A Omaha, but he's on this list, top offensive player of the season. Jorge Mateo, shortstop in the New York Yankees organization, who just blazed his way to 82 stolen bases this season. And a lot of times you'll see a guy do that, and, you know, the average is way down, or the OBP isn't necessarily that good. Not the case for Mateo, who had a great season. Uh, Brett Phillips, one of our guys who we have somehow not had on the podcast yet, which is odd. Uh, but oh, Brett Phillips. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Brett Phillips in the Brewers system now, of course, traded by the Houston Astros uh, in July. A.J. Reed in the Astros organization. One of the contenders for every single minor league player of the year award throughout the industry. Reed with just a phenomenal season between Class A Advanced Lancaster and Double A Corpus Christi. Domingo Santana, yet another former Astros prospect, now in the Brewers system, was included in that same deal, the Carlos Gomez trade that sent Brett Phillips from Houston to Milwaukee. He finished the year with the AAA Colorado Springs Sky Sox in his minor league days. Corey Seeger, who has gone from being top prospect to really an integral part of what the Los Angeles Dodgers are trying to accomplish going into the postseason, the shortstop prospect there, and the number two prospect in all of baseball, and Tyler White, corner infielder in the Astros organization. So we have not just two Astros prospects on this list, but two former Astros prospects on this list. So four of the six here, or four of the ten here, are Astros prospects, basically, drafted and developed, and it shows you, again, what the Houston Astros are doing and have been doing. But Sam, some of your standouts for top offensive prospects. Yeah, we'll kind of touch on the Astros again later. Best farm system is a uh, Milby category, so they are certainly, you know, spoilers a little bit, but they are nominated for that as well. Um, I, I kind of want to focus on some of the guys who we didn't necessarily think would be here at the beginning of the year. Um, you know, we do have a breakout prospect thing too, but you know, just some of the guys who, like you said, you know, there's certain guys we expected them to perform like this. You know, Corey Seager, um, AJ Reed. We at least thought that this was possible given the way he had performed in, in college and in his first season last year. Um, Domingo Santana, you know, another guy with with that potential, at least in the minors, hadn't shown it in the majors yet. But Trey Mancini uh, with Bowie and in Baltimore this year just really, you know, tore the cover off the ball. Not exactly a guy we expected to see this out of. You know, had a 341, 375, 563 slash line over this year. He's a 23-year-old. He was an eighth-round pick back in 2013 out of Notre Dame. A little, a little old for uh, some of the levels he played at. He, he played mostly at Bowie this year, like you said, but was also at High A Frederick. Um, but 43 doubles, six triples, 21 homers. I mean, he was showing plenty of power, both gap to gap and over the wall. Um, you know, we we like to see these kinds of stories where where guys surprise us. You know, if, if baseball was predictable, then it would be kind of boring. So Trey Mancini kind of coming on the scene like that was was nice to see. Um, Jose Martinez. You know, I, I wanted to make sure he was on this list. 
Um, you know, this yeah, is it's not a, a... It's a great inclusion, too. Because right, like we yeah. said, people forgot about him a lot. Right. And this is not a, you know, a prospect of the year category. This is straight up who is the best offensive player of the year in the minors. And for him, hitting 384 for Omaha this year, played a little time in the Arizona League, which drops his average down to three, 382, if you can believe that. But, uh, yeah, hit 384 in Omaha, had a 461 on base percentage, an OPS above, you know, 1,000. Um, this is a guy who, you know, he's 27 years old. He's six foot seven. You know, again, a little old, but he's a beast of a guy. Has a really big strike zone. Sometimes that's hard to control for for bigger guys, and he had no problem with that. Would love to see him getting a chance. You know, elsewhere he uh, had a, some experience in the White Sox system and the Brave system. Um, so now, you know, this is something that really puts him on the map. You know, we. we we talked plenty. We talked to, you know, AJ Reed. Like you said, I, I had that tool shed on uh, Lewis Brinson. Go check that stuff out. You know, read plenty on those other guys. But, you know, there are some guys who we not, you know, in, in 100 years would have guessed would be on this list. And it, it, it's nice to see them. Um, what about for you? Who, who do you have on here? I know you said Brett Phillips would love to be a guy we'd have on the, the pod soon if you're listening, Brett. Brett, give us a call. Yeah. Um, and Sam pointed out something that is. Uh, you know, like we talked about a minute ago, it's a fan vote. But these are also these categories are not based on prospect status. They're based on the best performances this season. So top offensive player, if you haven't heard of Jose Martinez, maybe he's an older guy. You haven't heard of some of these guys because they aren't necessarily in that prospect conversation. They're included because of what they did this year uh, as offensive performers. And that goes throughout these categories. I mean, obviously, uh, breakout prospect and, and farm system of the year. Those are kind of more prospect oriented. But just to clarify, and some of these guys, if you haven't heard some of these names, uh, a couple of guys really stand out to me. Max Kepler is certainly one of them. This year, double A for the first time, second in the Southern League with a 322 average, 112 games he played there. He led the league with a 947 OPS. And the thing about Max Kepler is, like we said, he's a German born prospect, and a lot of times those guys take a lot longer to develop at the plate. And it's simply because of the fact that they don't have the exact same reps. When you grow up in a country that doesn't play a whole lot of baseball, you are a guy who comes up short in the innings that you've seen, the amount of pitches that you've seen. That hasn't really been the case in Max Kepler's career. The stuff that he's been able to do in his minor league career has been pretty impressive for a guy that, let's face it, does not have the same exposure as a 22-year-old American kid or a 22-year-old Dominican kid or whatever it may be. Over the course of his minor league career, though, this year, by far the best, and he does it at the most difficult level. 322, 416, 531 is his slash line. He homered nine times. He drove in 71 runs. Just a terrific season from wire to wire and overshadowed on that team, too. I mean, that was a team included Byron Buxton uh, included Miguel Sano at a time this year so Kepler really stands out to me and I mean we've talked a lot about it but AJ Reed you can't overstate what AJ Reed did across two levels this season 135 games a slash line of 340 432 with 34 homers and 127 runs batted in there's not a whole lot else we can say about AJ Reed we had him on the podcast as well a few weeks ago so go back and check out that interview but he definitely stands out among a, a very very good crowd yeah, those are just straight-up video game numbers. I yeah, mean, absolutely. That's, again, the, the minors are so big, and there's so many different teams, so many different players, that you do have to put those numbers to stand out. And when we're dwindling this down to just 10 offensive players, um, yeah, it is the absurd that stands out. And A.J. Reed just had, even by Milby standards, one of the most absurd seasons that I've seen since I, you know, my four years working here. 
Um, so in recent memory, you know, AJ Reed just sticks out all the more. Um, certainly one of the favorites, but people can vote however they want. So we'll see how that that I'll be interested to see how that shakes out. Breakout prospect of the 2015 season. Buckle in, by the way, everybody, because we're going full bore analyzing all these categories. So in case you were thinking, all right, I can't wait for them to get to best farm system. It's a couple categories away. we got some stuff to get to before that. Breakout prospect of the 2015 season. Again, a lot of guys who maybe were not uh, part of the conversation coming into this season. And one of those guys really starts off this list. Orlando Arcia, shortstop in the Brewers organization, who was 20 years old mostly this season at Double A and just took off for the Biloxi Shuckers. RC is, we'll talk about him, I have a feeling, but he definitely stands out among this crowd. Lewis Brinson, as we discussed a minute ago, who's in that category for top offensive player in the Rangers system. Michael Conforto has been great this year for the New York Mets. Uh, a huge, I mean, a, a very pivotal piece of that team really had a great minor league season. It was one of those guys that everybody was kind of waiting on for this to happen, and maybe did it a little bit younger, I think, than a lot of people expected as well. Jose De Leon, who last year had a breakout season, this year follows it up with another one. Michael Fulmer, that trade piece that we talked about, who's now with the Tigers organization, uh, was part of the Mets system and was their number 17 prospect coming into this year. Amir Garrett, who we've talked about a lot in the Cincinnati Reds organization at the Class A advanced level this year, fantastic season. Jacob Nottingham, yet another trade piece uh and a really good year in an offensive friendly league be really interested to see what he does next year as he continues to climb the ladder catcher in the A's system brad phillips once more in the conversation now in the brewers organization aj reed the astros prospect and blake snell the Rays prospect uh some of the guys we've already discussed a little bit in these other categories but this is maybe the toughest category for us to decide because just like it was the year of the prospect at the major league level, it seems like it was the year of the prospect in the minor league level in the way that certain guys started to separate themselves in this conversation. Yeah, and the thing about breakout is it is a subjective word. I mean, there is no way that, you know, the offensive player, starting pitcher, relief pitcher, as we discussed, there are certain stats you can kind of break that all down. You know, you can say this guy's ERA was better than this guy's and yada yada. It's, it's tough to measure just how much of a breakout it was for these guys. We can look at rankings. If you, if you go to the page where the ballot is, we did discuss a little bit how much guys have climbed um, in, in terms of Arcia. You know, he was a guy who started the year number 88, now he's number 12. I mean, that's a little bit of hard data, but it's kind of hard to uh, look at, you know, just how big a breakout it was for one player over another. So, you know, this is a subjective category that makes it a little more fun for you voting at home. Um, but in terms of standout guys for me, you know, we talked a lot about these guys, as you said, already in the other categories. So I'll kind of touch on guys we haven't discussed yet. Jacob Nottingham is one of those guys, um, a guy, you know, he went from the Astros. And again, we're bringing up the Astros, uh, went from the Astros to the A's organization in the Scott Casimir trade. Um, this was a guy who hadn't hit higher than 247 in the Gulf Coast League back back when he was getting a start in the minors. This year he hit 316, uh, had a 372 OBP, 505 slugging percentage. Um, this was a guy who really just broke out with the bat. Um, you know, the, the A's are going to have to try to figure out whether they think he's more of a catcher or a first base type. Uh, but he did hit 17 home runs this year at 33 doubles, so the power is coming there. Um, really grew into his own, and for me that's, that's the definition of a breakout. Um, you know, I, I touched on Arcia a little bit briefly there, but he was he was you know the cog for the really good Biloxi team this year. You know, helped carry them through it through a difficult stretch. Hit 307. You know, had 25 stolen bases. Like I said, he went from no, number 88 to number 12. Um, a big part of that is his defense. 
Um, it, it was so plus. It's a, you know, all he needs to do is hit, and that's exactly what he did at Double A this year. Um, we'll be interested to see where how much he can carry that to some of the higher levels. See if he can get a chance at the majors next year. Um, but he was a guy who really, really improved his stock this year. And like you said, Michael Conforto, um, you know, we expected him to be good. He was a first rounder, but he, he arrived on the scene a little earlier than we were expecting for a guy who started in high A and was really banging down the door at Binghamton. His numbers are actually better at double A than they were at high A. You know, some of that is, it's, it's hard to hit in the Florida State League, but you know, you want to see at least him meet those numbers and he exceeded them, hit 312 with 396 on base percentage 503 slugging in 45 games with the B Mets this year. Um, and obviously now, you know, has helped carry the Mets to uh, their first NL East titles since 2006 um, and part of a really, really good outfield over there in Queens. Um, so yeah, we've, we've gone through a lot of these guys. These guys have broken out that they've gone into other categories, you know, for being top offensive player, start, top starting pitcher. Um, but it's up to you guys to kind of decide how do you de define um, you know, a breakout star. So that that's kind of the way I look at it. It's guys we weren't talking about at the beginning of the year who we're talking about now. Um, but what about for you, Todd? Well, there's, for whatever reason, I think listening to the way that guys in certain organizations talk about their guys on this list is what has influenced me most. And in that conversation, Orlando Arcia stands out because the way that his coaching staff, the way that his teammates talk about him is like they have developed some sort of secret technology that's going to save the world. And that's coming into the year. I mean, a, a prospect, a very highly ranked prospect in his organization, not really in the conversation of the best prospects in baseball, but for him to do what he did this season at double A and with the defense that he plays with the speed that he brings, Arcia seems like the, the whole package. And in an organization that was desperately in need of guys like that, especially homegrown guys like that. I mean, you acquire Brett Phillips, you acquire Domingo Santana, but to draft, sign, develop guys and bring them up, they needed somebody like Arcia to start to separate himself. And what he did with Biloxi this year, a 307, 347, 453 slash line in 129 games, just listening to the way that his teammates and his coaching staff talk about him seems like the rest of the world maybe had missed on him before this season, and it's because the numbers were not that good. But obviously the ability and the athleticism are there, and he finally started to put it all together this season. That's what really impressed me the most about Orlando Arcia. And, you know, I think Blake Snell has to be in this conversation very highly ranked because last year you could have probably said the same thing about Blake Snell, but this year he really made it known that last year wasn't a blip this was the guy that the Rays thought they were getting when they drafted him in the first round a little bit slow to develop they limited his innings some of his numbers were not that good at the lower levels class a really stands out he struggled at bowling green but over the last couple of seasons he's been the guy and that's what you need from those first round picks so Blake Snell you know we can't talk about him enough and really the the quality that he's been able to put together level to level start to start at bat to at bat he doesn't slouch. He never runs into those ruts that he hit at the lower levels when he was younger. So I think he's, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more uh, along the lines of some of those glamour prospects that you hear about, but as opposed to somebody like RCU who's kind of under the radar, but you can't discount what he did. AJ Reed obviously has to be there as well because Reed, you know, we hadn't really seen a lot of last year where he spent some time in short season leagues, but this season, uh, you know, you can't go wrong with those guys because, once you have 
those huge campaigns, then all of a sudden everybody knows this is who I have to attack in this lineup or this is how I have to approach this guy who's a really, really good dominant arm. Those three guys, to me, stand out as they're going to be the headliners of whatever team they're on next year going forward. We talked to Blake Snell about how he's you know planning on competing for a rotation job with the Rays next season. A.J. Reed will see him at the AA and AAA levels likely next year. Arcia could be in Milwaukee very, very quickly. So those are going to be headliner guys going forward, and uh, and they lead – at least what I think out of those 10, uh, which is, like I said, maybe the most difficult one for us to, to have discussed uh, and made our determinations from this season. Um, best team is a, a tough one as well because we saw a lot of really, really good rosters at the beginning of the season as we do every year, dominate in the first half, then get kind of broken up in the second half, and teams look different at the finish than what they do at the start, especially prospect-laden teams. But here are our 10 contenders for best team of the year, the most dominant club in the minor leagues in 2015. The Biloxi Shuckers, AA Southern League champions this year, uh, the best record in the regular season in the Southern League at 78-59. and 59. Bowie Bay Sox, Eastern League champions, uh, the Orioles AA affiliate, the Chattanooga Lookouts, who won the Southern League. I should clarify that. Biloxi was the Southern League's regular season best record. Chattanooga gets the Southern league championship double a corpus christi hooks in that loaded astros organization seven minor league affiliates made the playoffs there as well as their major league club triple a columbus governor's cup winners triple a fresno pcl and triple a championship with the houston astros highest levels of prospects there the gcl red sox uh, a repeat title for them in the gulf coast league at the rookie level double a midland rockhounds they repeated as well in the a system in the texas league quad cities river bandits surprise another astros affiliate in class a and the savannah sand Nats, who had 18 games straight with victories before that weird tie uh, that ended that winning streak but were one of the best teams wire to wire in the minors uh, um, Sam, your thoughts, because this is another one that's it's so tough to quantify because of how different teams look from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And maybe that's the conversation, the teams that were best throughout the season despite all the change. Yeah, and, um, you know, I will kind of start at the end there. You know, everybody likes to talk about trophies, and the only team with two trophies on here is the Fresno Grizzlies, you know, having won the Pacific Coast League and the, the AAA National Championship, beating fellow best team contender in Columbus. Um, so view that as you will, but... Uh, it, you know, Fresno was kind of wire to wire, just one of those really stacked teams. You know, they had Carlos Correa at one point this year, and then he moved on. I remember they, that. Yeah, <laughs> if you can think back to that time. Um, you know, they had Mark Appel. They had Domingo Santana at one, you know, for a good chunk of the year before he moved on to the Brewer system. Um, Tony Kemp, Tyler White. I mean, this was, this was just a packed roster, a roster that we were going to spend a lot of time looking at, and they really followed through with expectations. Um, you know, sometimes you want to give best team to necessarily to a team that didn't uh, or performed better than expectations, kind of exceeded themselves. But the Grizzlies met kind of high expectations we already had for them. Um, and like I said, we're the only team on here with two trophies. Um, one another one I really liked just because of the story was Biloxi. You know, they were kind of really road warriors this year, opened the season with a 54-game road trip, but still won South, the Southern League South Division first half title. Um, had the best regular season, had a record. They went 78 and 59, had the best team ERA. Um, you know, for a team that could have had any excuse for not doing well at the beginning of the year, they, they went above and beyond expectations there, led by Arcia, as we were talking about, and uh, kind of staying in that same league. I, I liked what you said a couple podcasts ago about Chattanooga. Um, 
you know, a really prospect-laden team, but, but Myron Buxton, Miguel Sano, Jose Barrios was there, Max Kepler broke out, Jorge Polanco was really good, Adam Brett Walker was hitting homers left and right. Uh, you know, this was a really, really prospect-laden team, but at the same time, they, they came around, they had a really good first half, not so good second half, but still won the Southern League Championship at a time when that, that city really needed, you know, something to gather around, and, uh, you know, given the tragedy that happened there in Chattanooga. Um, so I, I, there's a whole bunch of different storylines. It's not just straight-up records and trophies to go along here. Um, but for me, it's those three teams, Fresno, Biloxi and Chattanooga that stood out for me. But what about for you, Tom? Fresno definitely, I think, kind of stands alone to me just because wire to wire, they were so good. And Mm -hmm. again, you know, Chattanooga is kind of the same way that you see some of the top talent disappear and that team is still so good and that's maybe the more impressive thing than just you know being good wire to wire is the fact that this isn't like a major league club where it's yeah i mean there's going to be some changes here and there but you have the same core group of guys all vying for the same goal in the minor leagues you could have an entirely different roster at the end of the season than you do at the beginning of the year and in a case like chattanooga you could be a team that's pretty mediocre in the second half and still ride your first half division title get into the playoffs and really make some noise uh because of the the ability to know what it takes because of the guys who were there in the the first half of the season teams like Chattanooga teams like Fresno that's really impressive to me those two really stand out Fresno it just seemed like had that team of destiny feel I don't know what it was about them but all season this year just seemed like they were destined for some pretty big stuff and one team that I think is going to be forgotten in this um but shouldn't be the Savannah Sand Nats. And, uh, I mean, they swept their division in the South Atlantic League, did not win uh, a championship this year, but, I mean, had that 18-game winning streak. And there were so many times this year when you would look at what Savannah was doing and think, man, that team is loaded. And it's kind of bittersweet because it's the last team for Savannah. That team is moving to Columbia next year, so that fan base obviously gets to you know, say goodbye to their team with a, a really good taste in their mouths, I guess, of what they were able to accomplish this season. They're going to be kind of one of the ones that I think probably is forgotten among some of the heavier hitters this year, but they were a really fun story to watch this season as well. Yeah, we love winning streaks, obviously. We, we love winning streaks that ends in, that end in ties. That end in ties. Yeah. You know. Uh, if, if 2016 wants to learn anything from 2015, that might be it. <laughs> Have some weird things happen. Guys missing home plate on homers and ties and all kinds of stuff. Best farm system. Uh, again, I'm going to say this for everyone, but really tough one to determine here. Here we are. Here's the list. We'll go through all 10, and uh, I think there's probably one that stands out, but there are a whole lot that stand out for maybe 1A. The Arizona Diamondbacks, Chicago Cubs, the Houston Astros, the Los Angeles Dodgers, the Minnesota Twins, the New York Mets, the New York Yankees. There's a couple of teams you probably didn't figure would be in this conversation five years or so ago. The Philadelphia Phillies, the Pittsburgh Pirates, and the Tampa Bay Rays. Sam, fire away. Yeah, well, I think the one you're kind of acknowledging, we've said it several times here, is the Astros. Um you know, just at every level, you know, we were talking about playoff teams. Um, Correa moved up. Uh, Reed broke out. You know, there, there were other guys. Michael Feliz, we haven't talked about. Francis Martez, I think, was a breakout candidate. Um, I, I, he was at least number 11 or 12 on, on my list, so I, I wish he could have, you know, snuck on there for our nominees there. Derek Fisher, Joe Musgrove, that team in Lancaster, um, you know, that just tore it apart. We already talked about Fresno. Corpus Christi wasn't nominee for best team um you know and it shouldn't be any surprise to anybody that their organization had a collective 553 winning percentage which is tops among all the organizations um and then it only got better with you know the addition of first rounders 
Alex Bregman, Daz Cameron, and Kyle Tucker. I mean, this is not a system that just performed this year. It's a system that's performed to build upon that and going forward. And, you know, we're not necessarily expecting them to repeat what they did this year, next year, because a lot of guys are going to move up. A lot of guys are going to graduate. Um, you know, and then this is just so difficult to repeat a year like this. But I think the Astros are certainly number one. Everybody's kind of fighting for 1A. Um, but, you know, in that conversation, um, I think we have to acknowledge the Twins, you know, the way they, they churned out talent again this year. Um, it goes beyond Buxton and Snow, you know, guys who have only just moved up. Barrios, Kepler, we talked about them. Um, Stephen Gonsal is another guy who, you know, really broke out. Um, the Mets churned out talent that helped the team, you know, at the highest level. Um, Syndergaard, Mats, Conforto all moving up. Uh and being, you know, key pieces of that NL East winning team. And Gavin Cicchini, Dominic Smith, uh, you know, top 100 guys now. Um, one I, I really want to just kind of touch on before I turn it over to you, Tyler, was the, the Phillies. Um, you know, the team itself, the major league team, did not really do very well. But, uh, you know, the, I really like them in terms of not necessarily the performances that happened on the field this year for its minor league affiliates, but the way the system itself got stronger. Um, it was also it was already really top heavy with J.P. Crawford and Aaron Nola. Nola, uh, as we know, is in the majors now. Has been performing pretty well there. Um, moved up pretty quick. Crawford, you know, he's in the conversation with Seager as best shortstop prospect in the minors right now. Um, but that Cole Hamill trade, they really got a good, yeah, you know, significant chunk of talent from the Rangers and Jake Thompson, Nick Williams, and Jorge Alfaro. Um, in terms of, you know, what we like to talk about in terms of farm system and prospects, they really enriched an already good system with those three additions. Um, and in terms of best farm system, I think they have to be in the discussion that they built a better farm system than what they, they started out the year with. Um, oh, man, what an oasis that is for Phillies fans to hear. Too. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, they, they need something to look forward to given the way the team performed this year. They had some nice pieces. I think Adebel Herrera did better this year than we, any of us were expecting. Um, but they need something to kind of sink their teeth into and provide that there is hope. And I think with those additions, there at least is some hope, at least for the Phillies going forward. Uh, I will say that if I had to rank these farm systems based on photos, Dansby Swanson's <laughs> dreamy smile for the Arizona Diamondbacks and the picture that we have for him. <laughs> Friend of the podcast, Ansby Swanson. Yeah. Just that dreamy grin that he has there in his photo. Uh, I think the Houston Astros are, are a cut above, and I'll tell you why. These are the postseasons in the Astros organization this year. The Houston Astros in the American League, Fresno Grizzlies AAA champions, Corpus Christi Hooks at AA, Lancaster Jethawks at Class A Advance, Quad Cities River Bandits at Class A, Greenville at rookie level, uh, uh, the Tri-City Valley Cats, not the Tri-City Dust Devils, Tri-City Valley Cats at the New York Penn League, uh, short season Class A level, and the DSL Astros Blue. The only Astros minor league affiliate that missed the postseason was the DSL Astros Orange. So they had a team in the playoffs in that league, just not their other team. That, to me, the talent level, and, you know, I mean, we read off these nominees in all these other categories, and even the guys who are nominated are former Astros prospects. The Astros, to me, are just a cut above, and remember the way that people, old style, old time, old guard baseball people just ripped this Astros rebuild. That's so comical now because the Astros at the major league level are into the playoffs probably a year earlier than everybody thought they would be. And they're only going to get better from here. So the Astros, to me, I think they are the team in this category, but there's a lot of other very worthy contenders. The Chicago Cubs, I think to an extent 
will not necessarily have the same level of discussion as the Astros because their guys made impact at the major league level so much earlier with Chris Bryant and Kyle Schwarber and those types of guys, Addison Russell the same way. But the the big steps that they had in the minor league level were taken at the the lower end. Uh, the Class A teams, the Class A advanced team, Myrtle Beach with the league title. Double A Tennessee obviously had a lot of talent with Ryan Williams and, uh, and guys like that. But uh, I think the Cubs are certainly in that conversation. And like you said, the Twins, the Mets, um, there's just – it seems like there's the Astros and then there's everybody else. And that seems like that's the way it's been in player development for the last few years. If you're an Astros fan, man, you stuck it out through some just garbage for a while for some very good reasons. Cause your team is a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah. And uh, kind of just switch sports a little bit. Uh, it's a little, you know, apples and oranges, but I know the Sixers fans have been going through similar things yeah. like this. And you, you have this, promise that don't worry it's going to work out in the future right. it's going to work out in the future and that's still no guarantee that it will and you know playing in a wild card game that is success for the Houston Astros given what we expected and you know what we were thinking of them so they, we'll see if this is just the start there's still no guarantee but the groundwork that is being laid right now is just so far beyond what we're seeing from other organizations that you know they were first one on here they were the second one on here you know, I triple checked to make sure they were on here before we submitted our nominees. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I think it starts with them. You, you, you might be a fan of one of these organizations. You can make any, uh, you know, case you want. That's why they're on there. But, uh, yeah, I think you have to at least first consider the Astros and then think about why you wouldn't pick them if you're going to be voting elsewhere. Jeff Lunau and Sig Madon, Quentin McCracken, and Kevin Goldstein and the staff there in Houston has just done unbelievable work. And uh, great podcasting staff with Kevin Goldstein there as well. Um, so the Houston Astros are probably our pick there. Our final categories, we're just going to run through really quickly because they're a little bit more uh, something that you have to see and experience for yourself on the site than what we can describe. Game of the Year, we've got ten nominees for that. You can find the links to all those Game of the Year stories up on the site. Best Performance, Best Single Game Performance, of the year same thing goes there also our promotion of the year which we're going to talk about here momentarily with benjamin hill and photo of the year as well and then we have three video categories and we can't do those justice top play top home run and best blooper which you know you, that's the best category in any voting <laughs> so head on to milb.com slash milby right now again voting from october 7th through the 27th and give us your take your input and uh we're going to break down the top promotions of the season with benjamin hill who's back safe and sound from the promo seminar in columbus that's coming up next Back in the palatial New York offices after a, a lengthy jaunt through to try to find a, uh, a place to record. Benjamin Hill joins Sam Dykstra live and in person. Ben, do you as well? It's it's Milby's day, so we all have obviously tuxedos on, and this is a very we're like the Oscar nominations. I assume you're the same. Yeah, yeah, I got a cummerbund. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's going on, man? Back from Columbus, the promo uh, seminar and all of the the interesting stuff that goes along with that. We covered a lot of that last week, but how was the uh, the last stretch there? Yeah, you know, I talked to you guys from a food court in the Columbus Convention Center last week. I'm back from the minor league baseball promotional seminar. I got back on Friday. And, uh, you know, as I touched on last week, it's a great chance to see a lot of people within the industry who you don't get to see you know, in a group setting much at all, obviously, because everyone's dealing with their own uh, seasons. And uh, after I talked to you guys, um, you know, sat in on a lot of uh, group therapy sessions and uh, larger presentations in the ballroom, I got to present myself on Thursday. And if I do say so myself, it, it went very well. And, you know, once I get 
that out of the way, then I feel pretty good about the seminar because, you know, I carry a lot of tension before speaking. And then after that, it's just like, all right, that went okay. And uh, we had a great gala event, ballpark party at uh, the Clippers home of Huntington Park. And that's a promo seminar tradition is the host city, uh, whatever team plays in the host city, hosts a ballpark party. And that was a lot of fun. They had a zip line in the outfield and animals from the Columbus Zoo and, cool. you know, free food and drink and great way to say goodbye to Columbus and back in New York City on Friday and uh, you know back to the grind here in New York City uh, this weekend for the foreseeable future. Well we've got uh, a quick news item and then we're going to dive into talking about our promotions of the year nominees for the 2015 Milby Awards and uh, we know that it's kind of refresh rebrand season and this morning uh, recording on Tuesday we already had one released and the Hickory Crawdads will have a semi new look for 2016 and beyond give us kind of the the breakdown of hickory today yeah i mean their previous logo had been done by studio simon i believe regardless this refresh was uh, definitely done by studio simon and as we talked about before we went on the air you know quotes around the air um yeah this is more of a refresh than a rebrand uh you know obviously they're keeping the same name they're keeping some of the old marks um just kind of shuffling things around a bit at a new primary logo um some pretty cool alternate logos for the crawdads. Uh, I think one that we all like is the state of North Carolina in light blue with a claw overlaid atop the state of North Carolina, and the claw is pinching hickory on the map, you know, which is represented by a star. Uh, pretty cool uh, visual there. It is tough to describe logos for people who aren't <laughs> looking at the logo. That's true. But, yeah, state of North Carolina, hickory, crawdads, claw, star everything comes together very nicely with that alternate mark and yeah so that's one of the first uh refreshes of the season the ogden raptors did something similarly last month um it's going to be a little bit at least a couple of weeks until we see a full-on rebrand in terms of a team totally changing its look but hey tis the season for new logos alternate logos uniforms and whatnot yeah just quickly before we move on to the Milbies, you know just for the people listening, what is the difference between a refresh and a rebrand? And it's a kind of a touchy subject in the world of uniforms and logos and all that kind of thing. But what, what's the difference between a full-on rebrand versus a refresh? Yeah, it's funny. Um, again, we were talking about this before we went on the air. Um, it, it is something that's been in my mind here and there is when you know teams just say, it's you know, we've rebranded. And sometimes I just say, hey, it's rebranding season. So I'm guilty of it, too. But usually what we're dealing with is not a rebrand, but a refresh, a touch-up, because teams are not rebranding in the sense that they're changing their identity or that they're completely overhauling their logos to the extent that it's a totally new look. Um, so I think we do all have to be careful, and UniWatch has a post on this and kind of got it in my mind a little bit more today, that it's not a rebrand. And don't say rebrand unless the team is completely overhauled you know, scrapped its old look and has something completely different. That's a rebrand. Uh, but we're dealing mostly with refresh, I think is the word I like to use. Um, I'll, I'll try to come up with some other terminology as we go on. But rebrand, usually not the case. We have not seen a rebranding this offseason, and I'm not exactly sure at this moment when the next one is scheduled for all right, and kind of moving on, this is Milby Day here on the podcast. Uh, you know, we have two of our guys who have done promo previews all year. Obviously, Ben is the go-to guy in the minors universe for that. Tyler's done a lot of helpful stuff with that this, this summer, and you guys kind of collaborated on coming together for our 
promo of the year nominees. Um, so, you know, you guys can vote on that online on the website, you know, for the Milbies, but you guys go over, um, you know, what kind of stood out to you during the 2015 season in terms of promotions. Yeah. Well, let me open my, uh, I just sprayed Sam with a ginger ale. I like to open a ginger ale before I talk about minor league promos. Make sure it's it's there for you to water down fire takes. You got some good <laughs> takes on these promos. It's necessary for this podcast. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, as Sam said, Tyler and I uh, both wrote promo preview this year, especially in the second half of the season. Tyler really took it over, so the two of us collaborated on um, what is the traditional mode of operation with the mill promo beer, picking 10 promos that we believe um, were some of the best that minor league baseball had to offer. And the categories that we use are, uh, you know, they're one-night promos. We're not talking about between any contests or a off-the-field charitable endeavor. All those things are great, but, you know, we have to simplify, so we're choosing, like, one-day-only uh, theme nights, giveaways, and whatnot, and we pick 10. Um, how best to go about it? Well, we have uh, in alphabetical order, we have the Bowie Bay Sox with the Women in Sports Night, Brooklyn Cyclones with Sid Finch Night, Eugene Emeralds with their Remembering Civic Stadium Tribute, the Fresno Grizzlies with the Taco Truck Throwdown 5, Frisco Rough Riders with Full House Night, Myrtle Beach Pelicans with the Plate Cancer Night, Rochester Red Wings with the Miracle on Ice Night, Round Rock Express gave away a Willie Nelson bobblehead. Staten Island Yankees had George R.R. R. Martin out for Game of Thrones night. And finally, the Toledo Mudhens had a Back to the Future doubleheader in which they wore vintage you know, back jerseys in the first game and imagine what the future would look like with the jerseys they wore in the second game. So a lot of uh, diverse, unique, original stuff to choose from. Tyler, are there any that you want to highlight or among the five that you picked of those 10 are there any that really stand out to you or that you want to give a little more detail on you know there are uh i would say three that really kind of stick out to me above the rest and uh first is Bowie's women in sports night i think because the timing for that was very very cool it was just a couple of weeks after the women's national team won the world cup and uh i mean that was the big sports headline of the summer which now i mean it feels like we're so far away from that it was only a few months ago and that was really the big storyline of the summer and just a couple weeks after that the Bowie bay Sox welcomed in uh some former members of the all-american girls professional baseball league of course the league that was featured uh in the movie a league of their own and kind of the pioneers really of all women's sports uh in the united states and so i thought that was really cool that's an annual event for Bowie, but a, a really cool thing um staten island's game of thrones night and i'm not a game of thrones guy i've never read it i've never watched it but that was such a neat thing to me because of how locally tied in it was george R. R. martin actually based the concept of what would later become the world of game of thrones on staten island he was a new jersey native he would look across the water and see staten island and that was kind of the the first foundation of what he wanted the game of thrones actual world to look like and feel like and that kind of stuff that mystique of seeing something across the water so for him to show up at a minor league baseball game you know, be there uh, on a night where the teams, I guess you could say, rebranded for a night. Staten Island was the Staten Island Dire Wolves for a night. They wore some different uniforms and logos and stuff. I thought that was really cool. Uh, he brought out some wolves, uh, which are part of a, a sanctuary in New Mexico that he partners with for some charitable things. So that it was really neat. I mean, just the idea that George R. R. Martin would show up at a New York Penn League game in the summer is uh, is a pretty huge step for a team, for any team to get, but I thought that was really 
really cool. And the Fresno Grizzlies turning into the tacos for a night. Obviously, the taco truck thrown out has been a big thing for the last few years, but to take it that step further, and we talked about this when it happened, but kind of the matrix of making a promo out of a promo and being so far through the promotional looking glass the way that the Grizzlies did that and the worldwide acclaim that those uniforms and logos blew up the way that they got you know orders from all across the globe and, and international news coverage was super cool. And so those three really kind of stick out to me. Yeah, those are all great ones. Um, and talking about Staten Island, I think it's great that they've gotten a nomination this year because through the years, you know, they play in the New York City market. They have so much they could potentially capitalize on. And through the years, I'll just charitably say they've been underwhelming in that regard, and they get overshadowed by their uh, fellow New York City borough team, uh, the Brooklyn Cyclones. To, to see Staten Island finally hinting at the elite level they can operate at is, is a great thing. Um, for me, we don't have too many giveaways on here, and one I made sure made the top ten was the Willie Nelson bobblehead in Round Rock. Uh, you know, I'm a big Willie Nelson fan, so a little bias there. Uh, I'm seeing him on October 17th with Merle Haggard in Reading, Pennsylvania, if anyone wants to come down and say hello. You know, hey, you never know. But uh, they actually got uh, this authorized by Willie himself. He's wearing the Express jersey. The Express, of course, play. Um, just outside of Austin, which is Willie's longtime home base. And to celebrate an icon of that stature with his own bobblehead, you know, really transcends baseball because that's the kind of giveaway item that people around the globe are going to want, and they're going to see a team doing that and immediately think that's super cool, that's awesome, I wish I could be there. And uh, I think it's great when teams can really honor a local legend who, you know, transcends the region and, uh, you know, creates interest all over the world. And just for me, just kind of throwing out there, too, was the Miracle on Ice night with Rochester. Um, you know, being a big yeah, it was really cool hockey guy myself, you know, just kind of uh, a couple of guys from my alma mater, Boston University, played on that Miracle on Ice team. And it was kind of a nice way to, you know, it, it, the 35th anniversary isn't necessarily a gold and silver anniversary or anything like that, but it was a nice little tip of the hat to a team that really kind of changed you know, a big part of our history as a, as a country and, you know, global politics, that, that whole thing. We might tie a little too much into it, uh, but it was a nice kind of cross-sport uh, thing that we, we kind of, you know, hit on and got to see this summer. Yeah, Rochester did a great job with that. Uh, one of the few promos, maybe the only one I'm aware of, in, both, in which both the visitors and home team wore a theme jersey, um, except that both the Red Wings and visiting Syracuse both wore different USA jerseys. Right. I really think what they should have done, uh, you know, <laughs> Syracuse represents the USSR, but I guess that wasn't going to fly for various reasons. But Rochester did a great job with that. Obviously, you know, being that far north in the country and that close to Canada, they have a bigger uh, hockey fan base than most teams. And they had alumni from the team out there. They gave away commemorative pucks. They had, you know, the alumni shooting a first puck, you know, to start the game. All sorts of great giveaways, all sorts of great tie-ins to the event. And this is a team that has actually hosted its own um, AHL hockey games in the offseason in various years. I don't think they're doing it this offseason. So there's a real precedent to celebrate hockey in Rochester and uh, by taking one of the greatest moments in American sports history and really celebrating it and making their own in a minor league baseball context is great. 
If you went back 35 years, you know, 1979-ish, and told a whole bunch of college kids getting set to play in the Olympic Games, you know, three and a half decades from now, you're going to have your own promotional night at a minor league baseball game where you'll be shooting out the first pitch. I don't think, A, anybody would have any idea what the heck you were talking about, and B, I don't (laughs) think they would have found that very likely. But that's sports make some pretty cool bedfellows that way. Um, And this kind of ties us in with going back to to Columbus, Ben, in the the promo seminar. The Golden Bobblehead is kind of the – oscar of minor league baseball and there were some promos both in game there are some promos non-game day promos that were really cool and this kind of wraps us up i mean obviously fans will get to vote on their promotions of the year we give you some of our favorites uh for our awards for the milbies but the golden bobblehead is an all-encompassing sort of thing that offices front offices around minor league baseball really aspire to to contend for and to win um tell us about that this season in in columbus because there were a whole lot of really cool contenders for those awards yeah, the Milby promo, which we're talking, which we just finished talking about, you know, that's for uh, the fans to decide. And the Golden Bobblehead is, you know, picked within the industry, and the teams really care about it because the voting takes place at the promo seminar. They're honored at the ballpark party at the end of the seminar. It's a real great chance for validation among peers, and it's taken very seriously, even though at the end of the day it is a Golden Bobblehead. And yeah, there's four categories, and I'm going to blank on all four, but. You know, there's theme nights, there's charitable stuff, there's non-game day. So it really runs the gamut, and there's four different winners in different categories, and then an ultimate winner chosen among those four. And for the second year in a row, uh, big surprise, the juggernaut, the dynasty, the powerhouse, Brooklyn Cyclones won it all yet again. Last year they won for Seinfeld Night, which I did attend in fan mode. I didn't cover it. I just went with some friends. And that last year was probably the most comprehensive theme night I've ever seen in terms of the number of elements they worked into an evening. This year they won for something different. It was a non-game day event called Ambush Baseball. And I think one of the reasons it won is that so many teams could do this themselves. It's been established in recent years that sometimes teams will go to a Little League field and bring the minor league experience to the Little League field in which you know they do the PA announcements and the walk-up music and the mascot and between inning contests and all that stuff. The Cyclones flipped the script with that on Ambush Baseball, and they went to a local Little League game before it started. This was all prearranged, but the kids didn't know. And they said, hey, guess what? You know, King Henry, the MC, comes out of a bus, and he's like, hey, kids, today's game is not at your traditional home field here. It's going to be at MCU Park, home of the Cyclones. So as a total surprise, they put all these kids on the bus, took them to MCU Park, and they played a game as if they were you know, a professional team with all the in-game elements that that includes. And uh, the team showed a video um, recapping that event during the promo seminar. It just blew people away, uh, the joy on these kids' faces. And if you can think of yourself as a child, and uh, you know, before the adult cynicism has crept in and destroyed us all, uh, that would have uh, just been such a phenomenal thing to just be 10 years old and playing at your you know local little league field, your local youth baseball field, and then just gotten sent out of nowhere to a professional facility, have your jersey hanging up in the locker room, have your own walk-up song, which they consulted with the parents beforehand. Uh, such a cool thing, and I would fully expect other teams to pick up on that idea in 2016 and beyond.
That's what I was going to say. If there is a promo that I hope catches fire across minor league baseball and turns into something that a lot of teams, you know, try to copy, that's it because it is such a cool concept. And uh, so congratulations to the Cyclones uh, on the Golden Bobblehead Award. Uh, you can vote for your favorite promo of the year at MILB.com right now when you check out the Milby's ballot for all of our categories. And uh, it's there are so many, and it was tough. I mean, I know Ben and I combined to nominate 10, and there were probably 50 that we could have nominated because there were way too many good contenders this year. Yeah, there always are. You're talking about 160 teams and uh, you know most of them playing 70 home games a year. That's a lot of promos to sort through. And uh, I think we did a good job. Good job to us picking 10 great ones. And uh, you know we'll see what emerges on top after the fans have their say. Ben, thanks. Good to have you back. It's good to be back. Thanks, guys. Voting is up now, MILB.com slash Milby or slash Milby's. If you want to throw an S on the end there, it'll take you to the same page, and you can uh, give us your input for the 2015 season and the most deserving award candidates and winners for this campaign. We'll have a staff pick, we'll have a fan pick, and uh, we'll get you all up to speed on who we think is the best in 2015 as a staff as well as what you choose in our fan vote for the 2015 Milby Awards. And uh, that's going to do it for the 20, what do we establish, the 28th edition of the show? 28th, yeah. 28th, the 28th edition of the show you can rate review and subscribe to the show before the show on itunes you can find us there as the minor league baseball podcast um and not only is it milby time it's organization all-star time as well those have started to roll out on the site the arizona diamondbacks are up got a lot more coming this week and into next week i know i've got uh coming up over the next couple of weeks the chicago white Sox and colorado rockies later on this offseason i've got the seattle mariners and the washington nationals so we're going to have those throughout the next few months sam who do you have coming up I have the Red Sox uh, coming up, and Which I also have the Astros. Simple. So I, those are those are. You get the Astros. To, have fun with that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> those are almost hard to pick just because there's so much depth. Yeah, exactly. Positions. And uh, sometimes when we go through these, it's like I really don't want to pick a guy with 198. Like, but that's all I can do. And with at least my organizations, I can yeah. say that's that's the case. So. You're going to be writing War and Peace to cover those organizations. Uh, yeah, we we do have, have fifteen thousand word columns. Right. We do have a pretty strict word count. We try to cut it down, but I, I will try my best to pump as much knowledge as I can into these York All-Stars, as we all do. So those are coming up on the site. D-backs fans, your team is first up. Also, uh, Minor League Baseball and Rawlings named the 2015 Minor League Gold Glove Award winners, headlined by Orlando Arcia, uh, who we discussed as one of our top breakout prospects of the season. He is one of those guys, one of those uh, phenomenal defensive performers of the year. You can go check out that list as well at MILB.com. And uh, that's going to do it for the show. Did we miss anything? I think that's it. No, I think <laughs> we, we had so much Milby's talk that – yeah, this is the official Milby's guide. If anybody has any questions, I think they've all been answered. But yeah. feel free to, if you do, if you have any more questions, reach out to us on Twitter. Exactly. You know, DM, you know, send us as many questions as you may have. We'll, we'll be your guide through that space as well. Anything that you've got, hit us on Twitter. He's at Sam Dykstra, M-I-L-B. I'm at Tyler Mon. Minor League Baseball is at M-I-L-B. You can also get in touch with the podcast. Questions, thoughts, comments, concerns at podcast at M-I-L-B.com. And, uh, yeah, we're going to have a whole pile of fun with with this stuff going forward. We're hoping to have uh, some very cool conversations in the next couple of weeks as well. It's like we said, instructs are underway. The Arizona Fall League is getting close. So the podcast is not going to slow down. We're hoping to catch up with Justine Siegel, who is coaching with the Oakland Athletics at instructional work for them in Mesa, Arizona. 
Also hoping, possibly, to catch up with Atlanta Braves prospect Tukey Toussaint. That's been in the works for a while, so we're hoping to catch up with Tukey, who's getting his offseason underway as well. So stay tuned to the Minor League Baseball podcast as we roll on into the 2015 offseason. And uh, even though we spend the bulk of our time, you know, only talking about minor league stuff, it's not like we don't watch the big league game. Uh, So, Sam, your initial – this postseason has so many teams that are giving us really their first look – on a national stage, I mean, the Houston Astros, the, the Toronto Blue Jays teams that have not been in this conversation for a while. But who is your, uh, who's your favorite heading into this playoff? Yeah, I, I kind of go back to a lot of, and a lot of um, you know, prognosticators, predictors, whatever you want to call them, are going the same way. I, I really like the Blue Jays and the AL. Um, uh, that lineup is just so scary good. And then when you have the chance to throw out David Price, you know, as many times as they're going to allow him would any of us be surprised if he uh, puts again, not necessarily a Madison Bumgarner type performance in terms of throwing until his arm pops off, but uh, you know, having him out there squeezing as many innings as they can out of him, um, I really like the way they're set up for the postseason. Um, in the NL, I'm going to take the Pirates. Um, you know, I know this is going up on Wednesday. Um, they're going to be playing in the wild card game against the Cubs uh, a couple, couple weeks ago. A friend of mine. Um, isn't the biggest baseball fan just asked me out of the blue who I think is going to make the World Series. Um, she's from Chicago, and I told her uh, Blue Jays, Pirates. This was, I want to say, end of August. Um, so I'm going to stick with that. I'm going to take the Pirates and the Blue Jays uh, to meet in the, the Fall Classic, and I might be proved wrong as early as Thursday. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, uh, recording this on Tuesday is trouble for us because we could be picking teams that are already gone by the time this gets Yeah, goes. but I, I don't want to like, back out. And, <laughs> no, you can't. I really like the Mets. I do like the Mets. I would love to, you know, I live in New York. I'm, uh, I would love to see the World Series come to the Big Apple. Um, but I, I also want to stick to my guns and pick the Pirates. So if I'm wrong on Thursday, everybody can uh, let me know. But, uh, yeah, that's where, the way I'm going. What about for you? You know, I, I like the Blue Jays pick as well. I think sentimentally I would love to see the Astros just because we've watched this system grow and this organization turn itself into a formidable force for a while. And, again, by the time this goes up, the Astros could be long eliminated. But I would love to see the Houston Astros put together a run because that team is so much fun. The Blue Jays in the American League, obviously a very, very good pick, a really tough one to go against. Uh, in the National League, I feel like I could make a case for any one of those teams. Uh, the Central has been so loaded all year. You know the Cardinals are probably going to be there in the end, uh, whether that means the NLCS or the World Series, just because of their pedigree. But the Pirates, so exciting with all the talent on that team. The Cubs with all their talent, uh, especially the guys who have come up, like Schwarber and Bryant, made an impact this year. Uh, it could be the time the Dodgers break through. I mean, they've got Kershaw and another Cy Young contender and Granke, so they've got that one-two. Bit of question marks beyond that, but the way Corey Seager's played um, – they're a fun team to watch, and I just have a tough time going against the Mets with all those arms and with uh, what Yoenis Cespedes has been able to bring to the offense, David Wright being back and healthy. So, um, you know, I'll go Blue Jays-Mets. Why not? It seems like a, a fun pick, uh, and undoubtedly I will be proven wrong almost instantaneously. So uh, enjoy the postseason, uh, the start to the postseason in the big leagues, and uh, we'll talk to you next week on episode number 20, whatever it'll be, 9 of the show before the show. We'll talk to you then.